Well, good evening. Welcome back to uh, what is number 22. Imagine we've been, uh, we've been here for 22 weeks. And uh, tonight, after we've looked at the doctrine of creation for a couple of weeks now, tonight uh, I want to look at the creation of man. And uh, again, this is a kind of two-parter. Next week we'll focus uh, in particular on uh, the issue of man created in the image of God. Uh, the so-called uh, Imago Dei will we'll concentrate on that particular aspect uh, next week. Um, but now I want to focus on uh, more generally on the creation of man and as we shall see man male and female. Now we've already noticed uh, that uh, the creation account uh, consists of two or three different um, Hebrew words and that's where I want to begin this evening uh, drawing attention to the significance of the choice uh, of verb, uh, all three of these verbs can be translated as create, but have somewhat distinctive meanings. Uh, the first, Genesis 1:27, in the first creation account, uh, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them And the verb here, uh, I'm ignoring for now uh, the issue of image, uh, and I'm just focusing on the verb create, uh, and it's a verb bara in, in Hebrew, uh, which is a, a verb that is um, used only with God as the subject. Uh, this is a distinctive verb uh, and has a distinctive um, meaning. Uh, in Genesis 2, Genesis 2 uh, tells us that man uh, was not created out of nothing. Man was, in fact, created out of the dust of the earth. But usually this word, uh, bara, uh, has in mind the creation of something new, not necessarily new in the sense of uh, new out of nothing or ex nihilo, um, but new in the sense of distinctive. Uh, and um, man is a distinctive creation, a creative act of God. Uh, and then in the second creation account in Genesis 2-7, then the Lord God formed, uh, there's the verb, formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed uh, into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the verb here is yatsar, uh, formed in the ESV, and it has, uh, it has um, the meaning of uh, fashioning or kneading. Uh, it's the kind of verb that you would imply for an artist who's, say, taking uh, clay and forming uh, a pot or forming some shape or other from pre-existing um, material. Uh, and... Uh, it's because man is created from the dust of the ground. It's a word in Isaiah 
64.8, uh, we are the clay and you are the potter. The, the word potter there is the noun form of this verb. Uh, the idea of, of shaping uh, something from pre-existing um, material. And then uh, thirdly, and again in the second creation account, Genesis 2.22, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Uh, the verb uh, here is again a, a different verb, again, bana, uh, meaning to build. Uh, and the emphasis in this uh, use of the verb uh, is on the, the immediate rather than immediate, the immediate uh, nature of this operation. Uh, the woman is made from the rib uh, of Adam. Uh, so that Eve is a genetic uh, replication uh, of Adam. Now, just uh, from those three uh, verbs alone, uh, there are some important uh, theological uh, conclusions that we can draw. Uh, first, that man, and man here, I'm using the word man here in the Genesis 1 sense, man as male and female, or humanity, although that's somewhat of a cumbersome term, um, man, male and female, originates by an act of divine creation. Uh, it's impossible to reconcile Genesis 1, I think, uh, with any kind of gradual evolutionary process, uh, not without doing something radical to Genesis 1 and saying that Genesis 1 is not a uh, historical narrative, but it's something else. It's some other kind of genre. It's uh, poetry or something of that nature. It doesn't read like Hebrew poetry, and uh, it reads very much like uh, Old Testament historical narrative in the form of its genre. So um, man then, uh, male and female, originates by an act of divine creation, owes his origin to a creative um, act uh, of God. And secondly, the creation of Adam and Eve um, is distinct from the creation of other biological life forms. Uh, the way the narrative develops in Genesis uh, 1 uh, makes the creation of Adam and Eve, makes the creation of man, male and female, a distinctive and separate act from the creation of uh, other animals, land animals or, 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 um, or birds or, or sea animals. Now, that doesn't mean uh, to say that God uh, doesn't uh, replicate in the human species um, certain characteristics that are also to be found in, uh, in other species. Uh, Adam and Eve are created on the same day uh, as uh, land animals, for example, in day six. And therefore it should not surprise us uh, that there are certain uh, genetic uh, similarities between the human species and certain animal uh, species. That should not surprise us from a theological uh, uh, consideration or, that, or from a, a reading of Genesis chapter 1. 
And then thirdly, and we've already noted this in earlier uh, considerations of the doctrine of uh, creation, that Adam and Eve must be regarded as historical. Um, All, and we'll come back to this, all of humanity uh, emerges from these two as the first parents. Um, it, uh, it, it, It is theologically important, not least from what the New Testament does in terms of the transmission of sin and guilt and culpability, the doctrine of original sin, uh, but also Christ as the second Adam. All all of these truths uh, necessitate an historical Adam rather than a a mythical uh, Adam of some kind. Uh, Fourthly, the the sovereignty of God in creation. The sovereignty of God in creation. Uh, The idea uh, that lies behind the use of the verb uh, yatsar uh, to knead or to form uh, God as the potter. Uh, God makes man according to his blueprint, according to his um, discretion. Man, in Genesis 1, man, male and female, Adam and Eve, are precisely what God wills and intends them to be. Uh, He he creates a creature exactly, precisely, as he determines. Adam and Eve are not just happenstance. Uh, They're not just... Uh, products that emerge from a series of, uh, of um, uh, progressive but, but happenstance events. Uh, the, the narrative of Genesis 1 insists that Adam and Eve are precisely what God intended them to be uh, and, not, uh, and not the result of undetermined accidents of some kind or another. Five, the unity of the human race. Uh, we, have, we have all, all of humanity, uh, originates from this one human pair. Uh, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. This is Paul on uh, the Areopagus uh, hill in Athens. Uh, Paul uh, obviously believing in an historical Adam and that from Adam and Eve the entire human race uh, and all the races uh, of the earth uh, are derived from this one human pair. Uh, Sin came into the world through one man, uh, Romans 5.12. The Westminster Confession uh, similarly puts it this way, They, Adam and Eve, being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death in sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. Now, the chapter that I'm citing from uh, is dealing with the transmission of sin and the doctrine of original sin, but it's the statement um, descending from them by ordinary ordinary generation that I want to draw attention to. The confession here sees the entire human race as being derived uh, from Adam uh, and Eve. Uh, 
Now that's an important issue, the unity of the human race, uh, because it, it says something about racism, uh, that racism can have no place uh, within a doctrine of creation, uh, within a doctrine of Genesis 1. Uh, all, all of humanity uh, are derived from the single, uh, from the single pair uh, of Adam uh, and Eve and are not products, uh, separate developments uh, and, uh, and different genetic strands or whatever. Uh, everyone, uh, everyone in the entire un- uh, in this world, whoever was and is, uh, has been derived from Adam and Eve. That would be the, the the view of the Westminster Confession's understanding of um, Genesis one in relation to Adam and Eve. Now there are some um, further conclusions here about the the, the nature of man uh, as body and soul. And sometimes we refer to this as the psychosomatic uh, unity, the unity of body and and psyche, the unity of body and mind uh, in man. That that, uh, uh, Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed uh, into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living Creature, a man became a nephesh in Hebrew, a living creature. Now, nephesh is the word we generally translate soul. Man became a soulish being. Now, soul in Hebrew is synonymous with with living, with life. Um, it's not that man possesses a soul. That's not a biblical idea. That's more a Greek idea that the soul is somehow trapped in, in the human body, in the, in the created realm, uh, and that uh, redemption is being delivered out of the created realm uh, so that the soul can be set free, as it were. That's not a biblical idea. Um, nephesh, soul in the Bible, is synonymous with life. God breathes into him life. Uh, what survives the death of the body? Well, you do. You are still alive. Your body is dead, but you are still alive. What is alive? It's, it's the soulish part of you that is still alive. It is your self-awareness, your self-consciousness that survives the death of the body. One second after your body dies, you are still self-aware. That's the teaching of the Bible. To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. Uh, and to be present in a self-aware kind of way, in a self-conscious kind of way. So man, Adam, becomes a living creature. He becomes a a soulish creature. He becomes a nephesh. Uh, And it's uh, it's better to say uh, man is a soul rather than man has a soul. Now, if you find yourself saying man has a soul, you've got to write it out 100 times, man is a soul. Uh, we've got to get that uh, into our thinking. Uh, the church has been, uh, has been influenced a lot here by, um, by Greek and Platonic and Neoplatonic thought rather than biblical thought here when it comes to um, the soul. Now, uh, an interesting uh, issue has developed uh, in the church, uh, one uh, that may interest you more than it interests others, uh, and it's called uh, the issue of dichotomy or trichotomy. This is because the Bible sometimes speaks of body, soul, and spirit, as though 
as though there are three parts to humanity, a body, a soul, and a spirit. Uh, and uh, if, you, if you believe that there are three distinct parts to humanity, you're a trichotomist. But if you, if you think that soul and spirit are more or less synonymous, uh, then you are dichotomist. Now let me, let me, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this. Uh, it, it has occupied the church less so today than, say, in the 19th century, although there are branches of the charismatic church uh, that, have, that have advocated trichotomy in recent uh, days. First um, Thessalonians 5.23, Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, right, pneuma, suche, and soma, spirit, soul, and, uh, spirit, uh, soul, and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then Hebrews 4.12, uh, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit. Those are the two texts, principal texts, uh, that trichotomists uh, love to cite, uh, differentiating between soul and spirit. Now, I leave you with uh, Charles Hodge's little quotation on his verdict on trichotomy, uh, leading as it does in his estimation to a kind of Gnosticism. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave you to peruse why he thinks that by you getting to read that at some other, at some other time. Uh, the position of the church pretty much pretty much, and particularly in the Reformed Church, has been dichotomist rather than trichotomist, and that soul and spirit are different aspects of the, of the one reality uh, of humanity. Uh, seven, the affinity or similarity of man with the lower creation. We've mentioned this uh, to some degree already. Man is created on the same day. Uh, day six, uh, as other land-born uh, animals, and uh, therefore it shouldn't surprise us to find uh, a degree of similarity, a degree of replication uh, between um, the human species and other land-born uh, species. That shouldn't surprise us. Uh, man uh, was formed from the dust of the ground, uh, actually, in the Hebrew, there's a play on words, uh, dust and man, uh, Ad Adam and Adama in Hebrew, there's a kind of play on words. Man is dusty, is what the Hebrew is actually saying. So Adam's first name should have been Dusty. Uh, um, you, can, you can go with that if you want. Wasn't there a Dusty Springfield somewhere in the 60s that I seem to recall? Um, uh, but in the Hebrew, that would be, that would be, that would be what uh, Moses seems to be implying, that Adam's name was Dusty because he was made from uh, dust. Uh, think of uh, Genesis 3.19, uh, repeats, uh, repeats it, uh, you are dust and to dust you shall return. And although... Uh, 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 the, um, the burial service, the, the, the Book of Common Prayer, Cranmer's uh, famous uh, liturgy uh, that, that most ministers uh, cite at a funeral, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust 
to dust. Uh, those uh, famous uh, words. Um, man, man is, in one sense, biochemical. Uh, he's made of uh, water and uh, nitrogen and, and so on. He's made from chemicals. Um, he's more than chemical. He's not just chemical. Remember we talked about the fallacy of nothing buttery? You know, the, 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 since, since, he is, since he is chemical, the fallacy is he's nothing but chemical. Uh, he is more than chemical. He is also soul-ish. Uh, he, he is also chemical in a way that reflects the image of God. Right? But he is chemical. Uh, so that means, um, you know, that means that uh, you know, issues of ethics and morals apart, and, 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 and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say, but, um, but uh, the fact that drugs, for example, can work in animals and therefore can work in humans, that ought not scientifically or theologically surprise us. Uh, because uh, man is created on the same day, same kind of genetic uh, blueprint. Um, what, what this is emphasizing, the dusty element of Adam, what it, what, it, uh, what it emphasizes, of course, is the lowliness, in one sense, of man. You know, what is man that you are mindful of him, the psalmist says, in the vastness of this creation. He's just a piece of dust. Um, and yet he's more than dust. This piece of dust can create, uh, we sang, today we've sung at lunchtime, the music of Johann Sebastian Bach. And uh, this evening we were singing the music of Ludwig van Beethoven. We've done the B team today here in this room for sure. Um, some of the most exquisite music the world has ever known. Um, made by someone who is just dust. Um, Shakespeare's uh, famous words from Hamlet, what a piece of work is man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable, in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me, nor, no, nor woman neither. Though by your smiling you seem to say so. Uh, famous words, of course, from Shakespeare's uh, Hamlet. Uh, the, the, uh, the antithesis uh, between dust and uh, the abilities of, uh, of, of man. Let me say something about the soulish nature uh, of man. The soul. Um, Genesis 1.24 and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures, nephesh, living creatures, according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And then Genesis 2.7, the Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a nephesh. Same word. Same word for living animals and and Adam. Um, you know, I hear people saying all the time, you know, the difference between man and animals is that man has a soul and animals do not. There isn't a shred of biblical evidence for that statement. Not a shred of biblical evidence for that statement. 
what the Bible does say is that animals and mankind are living creatures. They are soulish creatures. They have life. There is a principle of life that we distinguish from the principle of death. Now, I know you're going to ask me, do animals go to heaven? I can see some of you already tracking down this line. It's a, it's a question I've asked myself a million times. I do have an answer to it. It's not, however, based on anything in here. Um, uh, the answer to that question does not lie in humans have souls and animals do not. Right? The, the answer to that question cannot possibly lie in that statement uh, because that isn't even a biblical statement. Um, If you ask me, are there animals in heaven, that's another kind of question, and the answer is, of course there are animals in heaven. Heaven is the new heavens and the new earth. It is a a, uh, recreation of Eden in which there were living creatures. So, of course there will be, is the answer to that. Now, if you're asking me if your particular dog is going to be in heaven, that's a much more difficult question. And if you ask me, is your cat going to be in heaven, and particularly mine, that is an even more difficult question. Um, Nefesh, but let's get back to the whole whole point here about soul. Uh, That nefesh is the word used in Genesis 1 of living creatures. Creeping things, no less. Now, uh, another issue here is um, the origin of the soul, uh, the origin of the individual soul in, in you and in me. Uh, is is just, as, just as the body, the DNA, if you like, is transmitted from parent to sibling... Right? So there is, a, there is a physical transmission of some kind or another from parent uh, to sibling. Is there also a transmission of soulishness from parent to sibling? And this also has divided the church. Uh, it's not a serious division, although it's been a hot and heated debate. Uh, it's not a, uh, to me, it's not a question of orthodoxy as such. Um, and it's, uh, it's a division between creationists or creationism on the one hand and traditionism. You're learning some wonderful words in this course. Uh, so your, your task for this week in an email is to use the word traditionist or traditionism. Uh, creationism, uh, some heavy names here, Francis Turretin and Charles Hodge. Uh, the soul is immediately created by God in each human being. So at the point of conception, um, God creates life. God creates soulishness. He creates nefesh. Um, and then on the traditionist side, and there are some even heavier weights on this side, uh, from Augustine to Calvin to Shed, uh, and uh, uh, note, I say, as Burkhoff points out, Genesis says nothing about the creation of Eve's soul. 
you know, there's, Genesis says about the creation of Eve uh, in a physical way, taken from the rib of Adam, but nothing is actually said about the creation of Eve's soul. That's, I'm not saying that Eve didn't have a soul, I'm just saying that Genesis doesn't actually answer the question about where did Eve get her soulishness from? Was it an immediate creative act of God, or was it something transmitted from Adam in some form or fashion? Now, this is not an issue that makes me, you know, keeps me awake at night or anything of that kind. I just thought it would be interesting for you to know that theologians have asked questions like this and, and have come down on, on different uh, sides. My, my guess, I may be wrong here, but my guess is that the majority in the circles that we move in are probably creationists today rather than traditionists, although I, I may be wrong uh, on that. And, and am I wrong on that? What do you think? Yeah. Uh, I'm a well, there you go. We've got a we've got a living, breathing, soulish traditionist uh, in our midst. You've got Augustine, Calvin, and Shedd on your side, so you should be pretty happy. Uh, I'm not sure that Scripture answers the question. I think that's where I am, and I'm I'm kind of on the fence on it. Um, and certainly, it's not an issue of orthodoxy. Um, Nine, the preeminent dignity of man, and man here meaning male and female. Uh, And I'm thinking here of the narrative of Genesis, and and we ought really to have a Bible study now in Genesis, and we ought to have the whole first chapter of Genesis before us just to look at it. But there's something about the very literary style in which Genesis 1 is written, in, in which the focus of attention, whilst it begins with God, the focus of attention becomes Adam, becomes Adam and Eve, becomes the creation of man as male and female, as the apex and crown and climax of creation. And, and that's, where, that's where the philosophy of evolution, I'm not talking now about the science of evolution, but the philosophy of evolution has done something of a disservice uh, in, in the fact that we, we now tend to think of man, mankind, humanity, as, as just another animal, as just another creature. And I think that Genesis is saying, uh, that Adam and Eve were more than just creatures. There was something distinctive. They were the crown. They were the apex of God's uh, creative activity. Note the divine counsel that precedes the creation of man. Uh, let us make man in our image. There is this uh, inter-Trinitarian, if you like, divine counsel uh, that precedes the creation of, uh, of man. Uh, you can read Augustine's uh, comment uh, l- later. Uh, then Adam is made with a kiss. You know, God, God breathes into him, right? He, and the images of, of the mouth of God, like resuscitation. You know, you're, 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 you're breathing into Adam's lungs, and you can almost see the picture of his lungs filling up, right? So how does, how does man... How does man come into being? And man in Genesis 1, um, male and female. How do, how do Adam and Eve come into being? Uh, with a kiss. And there's something, there's something terribly intimate about that. 
The rest, the rest of the of the nefesh, right? The nefeshim, to be to be hebraically, grammatically correct here. Um, the, the the rest of the created realm are brought into being, but but humanity is kissed into being. Uh, so there's there's a dignity about about man, and then man is made in the image of God, and we'll we'll talk about that next uh, week. Uh, um, e the mandate given to them, and again we'll look at that next week. Um, that they're given, man is given certain mandates to uh, to to uh, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And, and we'll talk about what that dominion means in terms of responsible management of the of the created world that God has given to us. Uh, and we'll talk about the polar bear and, and the whale and, and, and the, the species that are going extinct and, and all of those things next week because that's, that's actually a biblical thing, uh, that there is a responsibility here of exercising dominion. Uh, exercising dominion is, is, not simply, is not simply we have the right to kill them. Exercising dominion here has moral and ethical connotations. We have a responsibility to manage the universe that God has created for us uh, through subduing it. And, and all of that involves, I think, uh, I've mentioned three things here, and we'll, we will talk about this more a little next week. Um, uh, the idea of exploration and uh, man, man living on a frontier spirit, which ought to appeal especially, I think, to Americans. And uh, the whole business of research and inquiry. We were created to be inquisitive. Um, distinct from the rest of creation, part of what distinguishes humanity is that explore, exploring, creative, inquisitive spirit. We stand on the threshold and we ask what's on the other side. You know, you look at the, you look at the vastness of the cosmos. Um, tonight at about 8.15, if you look at around the, on the clock, 5.30... The moon, I'm not sure if it's a new moon tonight. Somebody was trying to explain all this to me this morning. Um, but there is a comet. If you, if you miss it tonight, it's going to be 100 million years before it comes back again. The numbers sort of boggle your mind. So you've got, you've got tonight, maybe tomorrow night, to see this thing. It's, it's, a, it's very small, but it's, it's a, at about 5.30 to where the crescent moon is this evening, at about 8.15 or so. So everybody out to the parking lot at 8.15, look up at the moon, and you'll see this. But, but looking at the vastness of the universe, uh, we ask the question, what's on the other side? What's beyond that which we can see? And then Jesus, the representative man. He is the last Adam. He is the second man. He took the form of a servant being, being born in the likeness of, of men. And, uh, and then I, I've cited the Chalcedonian uh, creed, uh, all of which we'll come back to next year. Uh, God willing, when we'll do a little bit of Christology next year. But, uh, but there's Adam, and then there's the second Adam. There's, there's Jesus as, as quintessentially uh, the apex, the omega point of created humanity. 
uh, in terms of his human nature. Now, man as male and female. Uh, and I want to say a couple of things here. First of all, about woman in the first creation story. Um, the, the differentiation between male and female is established by God at creation. Male and female, he created them in Genesis uh, 1, uh, 27. In other words, that sexual differentiation is a created phenomenon. Um, and I think that says a lot uh, as to how we approach um, the question that's before us, certainly in 2013, uh, relating to homosexuality. That, that human sexuality is, is a God-created thing. Uh, it, is, it is the differentiation is established by God in the creation uh, account. It's not a matter of degrees and it's not a matter of choice. It's actually a matter of creation. Now, having said that, every, every genetic rule is subject to malfunction and deviation. And I'm saying that exceptions here do not prove the rule. The rule here is um, that God creates sexual difference, male and femaleness. Secondly, the woman, no less than the man, is directly created by God. Thirdly, the woman, equally with the man, is made in the image of God. And we'll, we'll look next week at what the image of God actually means. But what it means for us here this evening is that male and female have ontological equality. Uh, this is what Paul means in, in Galatians 3.28 when he says there is neither male nor female uh, in Christ. Um, now we shouldn't use, uh, I, I coined a phrase here, SSH, uh, we shouldn't use Genesis 3.28 as a kind of selective sledgehammer by which to interpret everything that the Bible has to say, say about maleness and femaleness and about role relationships between male and femaleness using Genesis 3, uh, Galatians 3.28 as a kind of sledgehammer that the Bible doesn't know any distinction between male and femaleness. As far as the gospel is concerned and as far as creation is concerned um, there is neither uh, ontologically there is, there is no difference between male and femaleness. They have the same status before God in creation and they have the same status in the gospel. In other words, both are co-regent. Both are image bearers. Both are fully included in the divine mandates given to Adam and Eve in the creation account. And then in the second creation story in Genesis 2, uh, the creation of the woman is preceded by divine deliberation and counsel. It is not good for the man uh, that, that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And God then creates the woman. There, there's, a, there's a deliberate, um, there's a deliberate um, uh, purpose uh, to the divine creation of woman. <laughs> Uh, and actually, if we, if we are going to talk about deficiency here, it is the deficiency in Adam and not the deficiency in Eve. It is not good for Adam. It is Adam's uh, deficiency for which Eve is created. Uh, how can man's lot be 
lot, lot be improved. Um, the, the, the woman is given for the enrichment uh, of, uh, of Adam. Now God creates the woman. Um, God builds the woman uh, just in the same way that he forms the man uh, from the dust uh, of the ground. So he forms the woman. Uh, he made the woman using the rib. Now we're not told exactly how that came about. Um, and uh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Taken from, uh, as uh, one of the Puritans uh, put it, taken not from under his feet that he might uh, dominate her, not uh, from, uh, from his head that he might be intellectually superior, but from his heart from, from, from beside his heart that he might love her and cherish her. Now there, there is, however, the issue of what's called a primogeniture, that is that Adam was created first and then Eve. Um, and the New Testament certainly does do uh, something with that. First uh, Timothy 2.13, for example, Paul uses the fact that Adam was formed first and then Eve as a reason for restricting some distinct roles of government and teaching in the church to men. Uh, and uh, I've cited uh, a little quotation there from Wayne Grudem's uh, Systematic Theology um, that the Whilst there is no ontological difference between Adam and Eve, um, they have the same status before God in creation and in redemption, um, there are differing roles for Adam uh, and Eve. Uh, and that would lead into then the issue of what we call today complementarity uh, as opposed to egalitarianism uh, in male-female um, relationships. Notice the emphasis on companionship. Uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, and uh, suggesting, I think, that in the, in the first marriage, um, that the, the first requirement, I think, for a good spouse in a marriage uh, is companionship, uh, is that she or he is your best friend. Uh, and the setting of that in Genesis 2, you know, the Dr. Doolittle uh, narrative, and you know, all the animals are passing by, and Adam says, um, duck and uh, porcupine, you know, and uh, this thing waddles along, and he says, uh, bear. You know, and he names the animals. What language did Adam speak before the fall? That's another question. It certainly wasn't English, uh, for sure. Uh, but, uh, but he does notice they come in pairs. Uh, and uh, it's not good for man to be alone. Uh, it is the only negative. Casuto. Uh, Casuto is a, a Jew. Um, uh, lives in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, his comment here. Um, it is the only negative in the creation account and emphatically so. The not good is not only the absence of something but a painful deficiency. There is a painful deficiency that only Eve can fulfill. Right? Scripture could not underline better 
the degree to which solitude contradicts the calling of humanity, uh, Henri Brochet uh, writes. Uh, and then the woman is a helpmeet or a helper for the man. Um, Adam needs help. Yes, perhaps. Um, actually, li- literally in Hebrew, it would be that she is created opposite, uh, as a kind of complement to man. Um, there, is, there is genuine and perceptible difference between Adam and Eve. Now, this word helper is actually a word that's used in Scripture of God. Uh, and I've given you some examples there in Exodus, Deuteronomy, Psalm 10, 14. Uh, and and uh, so it's not, it's not the idea of weakness or frailty. God is a helper. And if you're going to be a helper, you've got to be strong. Uh, if you're going to help your children with their math homework, you have to know it better than they do. Um, so two extremes then need to be avoided. To correct one, we need to say that women are able to help because they are strong. And to correct the other, we need to say women must be willing to help. Um, in, in God's world, the Almighty is a helper and the Lord of all is a servant. So subordination in role uh, does not mean inferiority. And in the gender wars, uh, so much, I think, would be gained if we actually remembered that. Well, uh, that, that leads uh, to uh, point number seven here, and that's the issue of um, complementarity. Um, complementarity uh, implying that, that wanting to emphasize difference between male and female, wanting to eff- emphasize that that sometimes means difference in role. Uh, we belong to a denomination, for example, uh, that does not allow women to be elders in the church or women to be ordained as ministers uh, in the church. And, and why is that? And, and that partly because uh, we're not egalitarian but complementarian. Uh, and, and, and whilst we believe in the ontological equality of men and women uh, in creation and redemption, uh, that doesn't mean to say that we believe in that the Bible teaches uh, an exact uh, equality in, in role. Uh, and First um, uh, Corinthians 11:13, uh, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, the head of Christ is God. Uh, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That's why... A wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man now born, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given for her, to her, for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now that has to be one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament, for sure. Uh, and, and I have yet, uh, after 35 years of studying this passage, to come to a, a conclusion as to what Paul is talking about in terms of head covering. Um, but I just want to point out uh, in verses 8 and 11 something that Paul says. Man and woman are created in different ways, but they remain mutually dependent on each other. Uh, for a man... Uh, ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Now, uh, that's an interesting statement, isn't it? That, that man, uh, he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. And, uh, uh, you know, what in the world is Paul saying? And, and ignoring for a minute the whole issue of covering is, is Paul saying that the woman is not the image of God? Obviously not. That would contradict uh, clearly what God says in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. But he is saying that there is something about the relationship between man and woman that makes the man look better than he is. She is the glory of man. Uh, and uh, that's... Uh, that's a, that's a role relationship, I think, that Paul is referring to. Uh, emphasizing not so much egalitarianism, but emphasizing complementarianism or complementarity, as it's uh, called uh, today. So, uh, the creation of man. And uh, we still need to talk, uh, which we'll do next week, about... A man bearing the image of God, the imago Dei, and what does that mean? And it means a whole lot of things uh, which we'll look into uh, next week. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we thank you as we uh, turn to the Bible and uh, to a worldview uh, that is so utterly at odds with the worldviews uh, all around us and in our culture, we find ourselves marginalized, perhaps sometimes embarrassed by the worldview of uh, Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, we pray tonight that you would mold and shape us as a community of your people to be those who reflect uh, the very way that you have created humanity to be and redeemed humanity to be in Christ. And we pray for ourselves uh, in our renewed humanity in Christ, in the gospel, uh, that more and more we might reflect something of the beauty uh, that is to be found alone in Jesus Christ. Now bless us uh, this evening as we turn to prayer and as some of us go uh, our various ways, we ask that you would go with us and watch over us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.